So 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. (coughs) By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. May the Lord bless the reading and now the exposition of his holy word. This is not the first time that ritual human sacrifices have taken place in our country, Anand Nilakantan writes, nor is this going to be the last. The date, October 23rd, 2022. Human sacrifice has been a part of all religions since the dawn of civilization, he continues. In rural India, human sacrifices were prevalent as a part of the culture until recent times. And this was nothing unique to India. From Europe to America, from Africa to Australia, human sacrifices were common until a few hundred years ago. To be clear, the author does not support the practice. He calls for, quote, a comprehensive law to ban the advertising of magic of all hues and faith healing. Without it, he writes, don't be surprised when the next charlatan finds his victim to satiate his crazy god. Well, in paganism, crazy gods are irrational and they require unwilling sacrifices. People, usually prisoners of war or slaves, are ritually murdered to protect the citizens, the good people, from the curse of the whimsical and capricious gods. The cross of Christ is exactly the opposite. At the cross, Jesus was a willing sacrifice, and he stood in our place to receive the punishment that we deserve. The anger of the one true God against sin is not irrational or whimsical. God is not having a tantrum against wrongdoing. On the contrary, the wrath of God is his settled disposition against wickedness. It's not something that will blow over. It's far more terrifying than that. And unlike in pagan religion, Jesus on the cross was not the worthless one, sacrificed to protect the many who were good. On the contrary, Jesus was the righteous one, the only righteous one who was sacrificed to rescue the many who were worthless and corrupt. So paganism, crazy gods require unwilling sacrifices to protect the many who are supposedly good. Christianity, the holy one, requires punishment for sins, and the only innocent one sacrificed himself 
to protect the many who were wicked. Because Jesus died for our sins, we see them for what they are, disgusting, unglamorous, unwholesome, vile. These are the things that crucified the Lord of glory. And because Jesus died for our sins, we know that he loves us. And so we long to live a life of obedience. And because Jesus died and then rose again, we know that he is now at the Father's right hand, speaking words in our favor. John makes this clear in the passage that I just read. In John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, we see that we have a message from John. That's the first sentence. And then in the second half of verse 1 to verse 2, John tells us about the ministry of Jesus. And then finally, in verses 3 to 6, he gives you and gives me what I'll call a measure for your journey. So a message from John, the ministry of Jesus, and a measure for your journey. If you're a Baptist preacher uh, visiting this morning, then you can see that we, we Presbyterians can also alliterate. So a message from John. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Notice John's tenderness to the recipients of his letter. He's really being tender. He uses the diminutive here. It's not just my children. It's my little children. If I call my house, if I call my casa a casita, then I'm emphasizing that, well, maybe it's tiny or it's really special to me or both. And here, I think, for John, he's emphasizing his tenderness. My, my kids, my kiddos, my little children, you're my babies. And he tells them why he's writing the things. In chapter 2, verse 1, he tells them why he's writing the things that he's writing in 1 John. If you look at verses 9 and 10, what has he just said? He said, which was our uh, assurance of pardon, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's verse 9 of chapter 1. So, and then he says, if we say we have not sinned in verse 10, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, these verses in chapter 1 connect with... His exhortation in chapter 2, verse 1, not to sin. If we say we've not sinned, we're liars and we don't know the Bible. So we, we can't stop ourselves from sinning because we don't even know that we are sinning. Alternatively, if we think we have no hope of forgiveness, then we may say, well, let's enjoy ourselves on the road to perdition. If we're going to hell, we may as well have fun while it lasts. But John says, no, stop sinning. Confess your sins, receive forgiveness, be cleansed by the Lord Jesus, and start afresh. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. Now, he mentions these things multiple times. He does that in chapter 1, verse 4. He says, I'm writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Think about that. 
these things so you don't sin, these things so my joy may be complete. Seeing your little children sin is a recipe for a parent's deep unhappiness. But seeing your parents, seeing your children confess their sin, be cleansed and begin anew with the Lord Jesus is an occasion for celebration, for joy and thanksgiving. My joy, don't sin. Now, later on in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants his little children not to sin, and he wants them to know that they have eternal life. And he teaches them, notice, specific doctrine about God, these things, so that they will live a certain way before God. Now, these two things, life and doctrine, so what you, how you live, what you do, and what you think about God, these two things, life and doctrine, are intertwined. False religions always want us to separate them. They want to say, oh, don't worry about what you think, as long as you're nice to people. False. It's life and doctrine connected. Right? Alternatively, they say, who cares how you live as long as you have the right thoughts about God? False. Life and doctrine are connected. Christianity rejects these false alternatives and tells us that you live a certain way because you think a certain way. And life and doctrine are connected. It's the 100th anniversary of J. Gresham Machen's Christianity and Liberalism. And listen to what Machen says about this point of the connection between life and doctrine. He says, if any one fact is clear on the basis of this evidence, and here he's referring to the epistles of Paul the Apostle, it is that the Christian movement at its inception was not just a way of life in the modern sense, but a way of life founded upon a message. It was based not upon mere feeling, not upon a mere program of work, but upon an account of facts. In other words, it was based on doctrine. So the application is clear. Receive the message, these things that John has taught us in chapter one, and do not sin. Live a certain life, message and life, doctrine and following the way of Jesus. Well, you say, that's all in good, and I hope not to sin. But what happens when I do sin? What if I fail? Well, you will. And that's why John, and I will too, that's why John turns from his message to the second point, which is the ministry of Jesus, the second sentence in chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 2. John writes, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John wants us to know that in the face of our sin, when we, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, that's in verse 1, 
and we have the propitiation for our sins, verse 2. So an advocate and a propitiation. These are big words. What do they mean? Well, an advocate is someone who will speak on your behalf when you cannot speak for yourself. In terms of a law court, an advocate is an attorney. But it could be even stronger than that. Someone, it could be someone, as one commentator puts it, who has the ear of the king in the royal court and is able to plead his cause. So an advocate is someone who speaks for you. Now, you may feel like the prodigal son this morning. You're out in the far country. You're longing to eat the pig slop. And you're thinking about returning home. And you you think of saying, I'll just say, Father, I've sinned against you, against heaven, and I'm, I'm unworthy to be your son. Treat me like just one of the hired hands. Well, remember that in the story, the son does come home. And what does the father do? The father runs to the son. God is more willing to forgive you than you are to ask forgiveness. And it's good to know that in the moment of your spiritual crisis, you are not the only person speaking. You are babbling. You are saying whatever you comes to mind. And Jesus is speaking for you. He is the one who says, this is the one I died for. This is the one I paid the debt for. Notice that John, perhaps unexpectedly, says that our advocate with the Father is Jesus Christ the righteous. You may think Jesus Christ the eloquent, or Jesus Christ the merciful, or Jesus Christ the kind. But here, I think John wants to emphasize that Jesus is the Christ, that is, the anointed one, the one set apart for a holy office, And he is the righteous one. The one who speaks on your behalf in the court of heaven has every right to be there. There is no one in heaven who will ever possibly to say to the Lord Jesus, you have no right to speak. Oh, no. He is the righteous one. And he speaks for you. He is your advocate. John also wants us to see in the ministry of Jesus, verse 2, that he is the propitiation for our sins. Reading the passage this morning, I realized that some of us may even have struggled to say the word propitiation. It's a, a long word. And so what does it mean? A propitiation is something or someone who suffers in your place to appease or to satisfy divine wrath. A propitiation appeases or satisfies divine wrath. God's anger is holy, and God has holy anger against all our wrongdoing. God is internally constrained by his own nature to punish wrongdoing. God must punish wrongdoing. Now, some shy away from the word propitiation with the idea of appeasing God's anger because they don't want us to be confused and to think that Christianity is like the paganism 
uh, of, of uh, anywhere in the world. But John has no such fears. John has no concern that we will think that God, the Holy One of Israel, the one true Lord of all creation, would ever possibly take an unwilling sacrifice and slaughter the sacrifice for some whim. John knows that we understand the holiness of God more than that. That is not the Lord. Jesus is the willing substitute. And far from persuading a heavenly father who is against us, God has loved you from all creation. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the sons of God. So let's be clear. What we have here is Jesus receiving the judicial punishment that our sins deserved on the cross so that we are not punished for our sins, but set free. Now, this should be words of comfort to us because the same God who promises to condemn the wicked for their wrongdoing is the same God who keeps his promises to forgive those who are trusting in Jesus. This message is the consistent message throughout church history. Now, hopefully you received a bulletin when you came in. If you haven't started taking notes and if you have a pen, I want you to guess or, you know, make your best uh, estimate of the following four authors. So I'm going to read four passages and you tell me who said them. Number one. Jesus made our sins his own from his love and benevolence towards us. And the Lamb of God not only did this, but was chastised on our behalf and suffered a penalty he did not owe, but which we owed because of the multitude of our sins. And so he became the cause of the forgiveness of our sins because he received death for us and transferred to himself the scourging, the insults, and the dishonor which were due to us and drew down on himself the apportioned curse being made a curse for us. That's number one. Number two, we were all under sin and punishment. He himself, through suffering punishment, did away with both the sin and the punishment, and he was punished on the cross. That's number two. Number three, the only begotten was made man, bore body by nature at enmity with death and became flesh so that enduring the death which was hanging over us as the result of our sin, he might abolish sin. And further, that he might put an end to the accusations of Satan inasmuch as we have paid in Christ himself the penalties for the charges of sin against us. Number four, Christ freed us from the punishment by, from punishment by enduring our punishment and our death, which came upon us from the very curse of sin. It's number four. Okay, who are these people? John Calvin, John Owen, John Stott, and John Piper? Martin Luther? Martin Bootser? Martin Luther King Jr.? Charles Hodge? Charles Spurgeon? King Charles III? 
No. The first is from Eusebius of Caesarea, who died in 339. The second is from John Chrysostom, who died in 407. The third is from Cyril of Alexandria, who died in 444. And the last is Thomas Aquinas, who died in 1274. The message that Christ was punished for our sins is consistent throughout the church. Jesus died for us, and he speaks for us today. That is the message of the gospel. Jesus died for us. But no, you say, Jesus didn't die for me. Well, you didn't listen to verse 2. John says, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God delights to bring from every tribe, nation, and people those who are sinners, but that he calls and woos to himself. Look around. I mean, we've got, if, you don't, if you're not trusting in Jesus this morning because you think that God could not accept you, look at what kind of strange riffraff God allows to preach his gospel and to come into the church and to take the Lord's Supper. Jesus paid it all. You bring him your sin. He purchased your forgiveness. And yes, we tremble before a holy God. Sometimes we cannot look up to heaven, but even in those moments know that Jesus is your advocate. He died for you and he speaks for you too. So take heart and do not sin. Now, finally, we have a measure for your journey. We heard a message from John. We dwelt upon the ministry of Jesus. Now in verses three to six, John gives us a measure for your journey. And by this, he writes, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, we need to be careful here. Jesus is not saying that if you keep his commandments, then you know that you've come to know him. Sorry, that's what he's saying. He's not saying if you keep his commandments, then you know him. There are people who seem to keep his commandments, but they're not saved. They don't know God. The measure for our journey that John puts before us is is not if you keep his commandments, then you know that you've come, then you are saved. If you keep his commandments, then you're saved. That's not what he's saying. It's technical, but he's, he's talking about whether or not you have come to know that you know him. There's a distinction between knowing him and knowing that you know him. We can know something without knowing that we know it. We can, that may sound like gibberish. That's what I'm my concern. But think about it. You can love someone without knowing that you love that person. And then it hits you in a flash. And here John gives us a way to know that we know him. To know that we know God and more importantly that we're known by God. We can see the fruit of God in our lives We can judge the cause, the Lord God himself, by the effect 
the, the fact that all of a sudden we want to read our Bibles. We want to pray. We delight to come to church. There was a, a, a philosopher who um, uh, said that, that he was uh, raised a Unitarian and when he went off to college, he didn't have a crisis of faith because he didn't have any faith to give up. It was uh, Unitarians believe in the uh, fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and the neighborhood of Boston. <laughs> but, uh, but, then he, but then he said that, that one morning, he, one morning he woke up and he thought, I'm going to go to church. I, I'm going to go to church. And he, he writes in his uh, brief autobiography that it was as, li- as likely as if he had said, would, would have woken up one morning and said, I'm going to take up hang gliding. That's what I'm going to do. It was unexpected. We can look at our changed lives and we can see the effects of God who is working in us. Now, far from being a kind of heavy-handed, guilt-trippy way of thinking about your life, this approach should give us comfort. As one commentator puts it, the knowledge of God is not some mystic vision or intellectual insight. It is manifested when we obey his commandments. And of course, we don't obey perfectly. That's why we need the propitiation for our sins and Jesus Christ, the righteous, to be our advocate. But we can come to know that we know him. We know him and we can come to know that we know him. Now, later on in First uh, John, in chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, John actually says, by this we know that we abide in him. This is how we know that we know him. And he in us because he's given us this, his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. So we do good works and we attribute them appropriately enough to God who's working in us. And the Holy Spirit, additionally, the Holy Spirit testifies to us inwardly that we belong to the Lord. So even as we feel and know him working in our hearts and he testifies that we belong to Jesus, we have these new desires and we see them work out in our lives and we are comforted. Now, not everybody should be comforted, right? Chapter two, verse four, there are some who don't keep his commandments and they are liars and the truth is not in them. Here, John repeats a refrain from chapter one, verse 10. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If you say you know God, but you do not obey God, then you do not know God. Saying you're a Christian doesn't make you one. Clinging to Jesus makes you a Christian. As John writes in chapter 5, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you're lying to yourself and to others this morning that you know him when you know that you don't know him, then you need to confess and repent. In doing so, part of that process requires that you walk in the way of Jesus. As John says in chapter two, verse six, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, perhaps all of this is a little too abstract for our consideration, 
Let's turn again to knowing, loving somebody and knowing that we love someone. Surely what happens is that we love first and then we gradually realize how much we love the person. Tape chapter 60 from Pride and Prejudice, which begins with a scene after Elizabeth Bennet has finally accepted Mr. Darcy's proposal of marriage. Elizabeth's spirits soon rising to playfulness again. She wanted Mr. Darcy to account for his having ever fallen in love with her. How could you begin, said she. I can comprehend your going on charmingly when you had once made a beginning. But what could set you off in the first place? And Mr. Darcy replies, I cannot fix on the hour or the spot or the look or the words which laid the foundation. It is too long ago. I was in the middle before I knew that I had begun. Friends, we were in the middle before we knew that we had even begun. Love precedes a knowledge of love. You find yourself eagerly desiring to pray, hungry to read the word in the morning, giving generously to others. Take heart. The love of God is being perfected in you. As as John says in chapter two, verse five, you are walking in the way of the Lord Jesus. There is a measure for your journey, but it's not a measure to break you or to discourage you, but to encourage you and call you to more fervently desire to live the way that Jesus lived. The call of the Christian life is so unusual that you wonder why there'd be a single person who would convert to Christianity. It's suffering now and glory later. But even to suffer in this life is sweetness itself when we walk in the way of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. Thank you that Jesus died for us and that he speaks for us. May you work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, that we may not sin, that we may see the work of Jesus in us. Heavenly Father, may you perfect the love that you have started in us by your Holy Spirit to make us less like our sinful selves and more like your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous. And it's in his strong and powerful name we pray. Amen.